What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. One of my favorite authors for children, Lloyd Alexander, believed that for young people, literature is a dress rehearsal for life. This is a common thought for authors, and even for teachers, parents, and librarians. As adults, we can see that through books, young people are given time to audition aspects of their world. As they read, they encounter diverse situations that allow them to practice new values and ways of dealing with problems. Literature guides children through the numerous possible attitudes a person can have towards life. Books show them an infinite variety of values, emotions, and lifestyles. Then these same books also help young people select from this rich palette those portions which are correct for themselves and the society around them. One item of critical importance to children on this journey of discovery is that it is done in a non-threatening environment. The perils and evils in books are not overly harmful or overwhelming, and they are easily vanquished by simply closing the pages. One of my favorite quotes paraphrased from an idea by author G.K. Chesterton by another great author, Neil Gaiman, notes, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. This quote captures for me just how powerful stories can be in giving ways for us to deal with life. Many adults may be shocked or even outraged at the numerous unbounded worlds available to young people in books. This is especially true when we propose that children use books to test all aspects of their world. We are all inclined to protect children from the harsh realities of the world. In doing this, we also try to censor the things young people read with the hopes of keeping them innocent. This certainly is a noble endeavor, but might I suggest there is some caution needed. Since young people truly desire to know and experience many things, it is important that we not make the mistake of only showing them the simple, easy, and light portions of the world. We must allow them to discover the hard things as well as the good so that they may have an opportunity to formulate their own values and find solutions to problems by themselves. As adults, we must guide children, but not manipulate them. It is the children who are allowed to make mistakes who are the most fortunate. For we see here at Rachel's World, it is only through the gentle, non-manipulative guiding that great books can provide that young people will be able to acquire the keys to their future. Many experts say that we should let children read what they want to read. It might not be what we want, but maybe that's not the point. We could and should just celebrate that they're reading at all. Now there's even better news, says literary expert Nell K. Duke. We adults and teachers can help broaden horizons for our children, often by example. We can show them how their specific choices and preferences are not the only exciting worlds awaiting them. Nell K. Duke is a professor with expertise in literacy, language, and culture. She works in the combined program in education and psychology at the University of Michigan. Duke's award-winning research focuses on early literacy development, particularly among children living in poverty. 
One of Duke's most recent books is Beyond Bedtime Stories, A Parrot's Guide to Promoting Reading, Writing, and Other Literacy Skills from Birth to Five. Here's Rachel and Nell Duke. We're speaking with Nell Duke today. Welcome, Nell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we are very excited to have you on the show today. You have such a broad expertise with literacy and engaging children with literacy. So let's open with a question. What are some of the things that you think are the strongest things we could do as interested adults to help our children engage with literacy? Well, one of the most important things to do is to make sure that we're getting books in kids' hands that they want to read. Um, and that means very different things for different kids, right? So, um, you know, my son, for example, absolutely loves books that have lots of humor, um, whereas my daughter has always sort of leaned toward realistic fiction that isn't necessarily trying to um, convey humor. So, you know, it's finding the right books for that child, um, both stories as, as the examples I've just given, but also informational text. So if your kid's really into skateboarding, then we want books about skateboarding. And if your child is really into soccer, then looking for books about soccer and just really building um, a repertoire of books for your child or for children um, that they're interested in reading. And sometimes what they want to read isn't what we want them to read, right? <laughs> you know, we wish they would read some classic book that we loved as a child, and we find out that instead what they really want to read is a biography of the latest pop star. But um, we, we do want to really celebrate children's own interests and sometimes think of those books that wouldn't be our first choice as sort of, um, I talk about them as gateway books. So maybe that initial book isn't of the level of, of sophistication or the topic that you want, but maybe it's a gateway into a topic that, um, or to a book or treatment that you think is more sophisticated or um, conveys content that you would more want your child to know. I can't agree more. I think that that is foundational. And I like this sense of gateway that maybe something that we don't appreciate as adults. So so how do we take those steps? How do we help guide our readers um, beyond maybe their own personal interests and tastes and help them to develop into eclectic, broad-ranged readers? Well, Linda Gambrell and Barb Marinak have used the term book blessings, and I think that's a lovely term to use to talk about how we as adults can really um, influence children's and book choices um, through our blessings of books or our sharing books that we think they might enjoy. So if a child has just finished reading a, a biography of a pop celebrity, um, maybe the adult then talks about three other biographies that the adult thinks the child might like, and what about each one of those biographies um, they really enjoyed or thought that would connect well with the child. And, you know, that's going to influence um, children's own choices. And, and yet by sharing or blessing several books, we're still um, giving children choice, which is so important in reading. So I think one way is, is really by um, taking the opportunity to introduce books related to what the child has enjoyed, but that maybe take it a little step further. Um, another thing that I think we can do that's, that can be really powerful is, um, you know, to connect uh, children together who have similar reading interests and have them share with one another both what they've read and what they hope to read next. 
Um, so if you're a classroom teacher, you can do that by making sure that there is a time regularly for kids to meet with partners or small groups to talk about what they're reading and to share book suggestions and recommendations. We know that social interaction around reading is so important. Um, but if you're a parent or a family member, you, you can do that in some different ways. So if there's a cousin of a similar age, maybe you encourage some texting or emailing back and forth about what um, they're reading, or maybe you um, go on a website with a child in which other kids of the same age have shared their book recommendations. Um, so there are lots of ways to kind of bring in um, recommendations and suggestions for books that come from peers, which might be particularly powerful for kids. Thank you for those recommendations. I think those are great tips. I think that concept of it being a social activity and reading being a social activity is very interesting to me. And I particularly, I think there is some context here when we talk about the earliest readers and the sociality of reading, particularly with families and bringing families together. So can you maybe address some of um your thoughts along those lines about how we can, particularly for the early uh, childhood uh, er- area or the younger kids, how we would add that kind of sociality in into the reading. Great. Yeah, so, so for children who are um, in the years where they're not uh, reading independently yet themselves, um, some of the things that we can do to bring social interaction around um, reading, I mean, the one that probably comes to mind for most people first is reading aloud. Um, to the child that, you know, one-on-one sharing or one-on-two-or-three sharing of, um, you know, favorite books or other texts is certainly a really powerful way um, to enjoy reading together and also to be building uh, lots of valuable literacy knowledge and skills uh, through reading. But there are lots of other ways that sometimes don't get as much attention. Um, you know, writing a text message with the child is um, is absolutely a social interaction. So maybe together, um, the child and and one parent decide what they're gonna the text message they're gonna send to uh, the other parent. Or maybe um, there's an opportunity for an email message or to. Um, to compose a, a letter or a card, right? Um, probably not so popular these days, but those are opportunities to interact with other family members or friends through the power of the written word. Um, so that's an, another piece. The kitchen provides a really powerful context for social interaction around literacy. Um, there are all kinds of things that we recommend just in the kitchen space. Certainly the parent or other family member sharing stories with the child. We know that just hearing oral stories has a lot of uh, potential benefits for um, children and then encouraging children, you know, to share their own stories. You probably are well aware of the research on dinner table conversation, but opportunities when the family is eating together to talk not just about, you know, past the mashed potatoes, (laughs) um, but really talking about the past, things that have happened to the family in the past, experiences that they've had, memories, and then, you know, the future, what's going to happen next weekend, and so forth. Um, Those kinds of conversations are really good for literacy development because, they offer what is sometimes called decontextualized language, which is just a fancy way of talking about language and that's not really about the here and now, that doesn't have some of the same context as the here and now, which is much like the language in many texts. So, so the kitchen alone is a place for lots of social interaction around story and information and reading and writing. 
I love that sense that we can extend this into spaces that we may not have considered for literacy and also into contexts that we wouldn't consider for literacy. And then you bring in that sense of these skills of listening and speaking and how significant those seem to be to the literacy experience beyond just the reading and writing experience. So beyond this uh, language extension that you mentioned earlier, what are some of those listening and speaking skills that particularly these other contexts can help us build in children? Yeah, I think it's a, you're asking a really important question because we know that in a lot of ways, literacy really, um, expression I've heard is floats on the sea of oral language. <laughs> um, Beautiful. That, that really in a lot of ways, oral language provides that foundation for learning and growing as a reader and as a writer. So, so developing those speaking and listening skills is really so important. And one tool we have at our disposal um, that people might sort of feel shy about, but is television and video. You know, of course, uh, like like many things, there's television that's n- not of a quality or of a content that we would want to share with young children. <laughs> but there's also lots of television programming. I mean, certainly what's produced by by the public broadcasting service, PBS, is, is of really often very high quality and educational for children. And um, interacting around those programs is an opportunity to really practice listening and meaning construction. Um, so most programs and episodes have a story or many stories inside them that the child can work to make sense of alongside the parent. And as well, increasingly, there are programs that are designed primarily to convey information, for example, about the animal world. And so an opportunity there for working on listening and and building meaning with the family. So that's one tool that I would look at over on uh, primarily the listening side of things. And in terms of the speaking side of things, one of the things that I really encourage is for uh, families to encourage play around literacy, children making up um, stories, making up puppet shows, making up plays, and just the talk that occurs, you know, when, when the child's on the floor with some little figurines and, you know, is acting out a a scene or a scenario, asking questions during that time that encourage uh, the child to really uh, articulate what's happening or give characters voice, like, well, what did he say? Those kinds of questions can really help to allow children or encourage children to produce language inside something that's very meaningful to them, which is, which is play scenarios. It's such a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Nell, for taking the time today to help us extend our understanding of the context of literacy, especially when it comes to young children. We really appreciate your time and thoughts. Thank you. That was educator, author, Nell Duke, talking about ways we can help our children engage with literature. Next, Rachel talks to children's book author, Matthew J. Kirby, about his creative process with his standalone books as opposed to his popular series. You may know some of his titles, such as The Clockwork Three, Icefall, The Dark Gravity Sequence Series, and his most recent books, A Taste for Monsters and Last Descendants, the first of the Assassin's Creed series. When he's not writing books, Matt is also a school psychologist. Here's Rachel with Matt Kirby. We're glad to have Matt Kirby here today visiting with us about some of his work. We are really, one of the things I'm really interested in, Matt, is 
you do a lot of different kinds of things with your writing. One of the things you do is you do standalone books, and then you also do books in a series, and then you've worked with other authors on a series. Talk to us a little bit about that process. How how would you approach a standalone book differently than you would approach a book in a series? Well, for me, it all it originally will start with story and being true to whatever that story wants to be. People ask, my first few books, you know, The Clockwork Three, Icefall, The Lost Kingdom, those are all standalone. And people would ask, when are you going to do a series? And I would say, well, when I have a, an idea for a story that needs a series, I'm not going to artificially inflate something to make it into a series simply to be a series. So it took, it actually was a little while before I felt like I had an idea of my own that warranted a series that, that needed that structure in order to tell that story. What is the thing that warrants a series? I mean, what was that tipping point for you? Was there something specific about it? Well, for example, the the first series idea that I had that I thought this needs to be a series was the Quantum League, which I wanted to tell a magical crime saga. But I didn't. And I wanted to visit some of my favorite kind of ideas in a crime saga. So the first novel is a heist. The second novel is a mafia novel. Um, and then the third novel is a cat and mouse sort of like mastermind, criminal mastermind, like, you, you know, staying one step ahead, um, that kind of a story. And like, so, so in order for me to fully visit and, and ask all the questions that I wanted to ask and, and do all the cool things that I wanted to do in a crime story, it required different books. Like it required different stories to approach each of those aspects of it. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers yeah, your question. Yeah, that does. That but, does. Yeah. but, I mean, why not write those three separate kind of crime sagas separately? Why why connect them with characters and and settings and stuff that are the same? What, what made that want to be a connected set instead of just three separate different novels, do you think? Well, in that instance, they were tied together by the the organization, the Quantum League, which is kind of this, like magical CIA, FBI kind of an organization. So they were tied together in a world where it was possible to have, when I say magic, they don't refer to that in the book. It's got a science fiction, quantum mechanics sort of explanation for magic. But in that instance, it took place all in the same world. So it made sense to have all the same characters taking on that that storyline sort of one piece at a time. That makes a lot of sense. One of the other unique things you've done is you've actually worked on a series um, that other authors write the other books. So you're not the Infinity Infinity Ring series. You're not the only author writing those books. So in a series like that, where you're collaborating with a wide range of authors, and it's particularly with Infinity Ring, there's lots of different styles, lots of different kinds of approaches. How is that different than writing a series on your own? Well, for me, it kind of felt like what it might feel like to be in a writer's room on a TV show where you've got lots of creative people that are all there contributing. So in that instance, James Dashner had sort of fleshed out a general outline. And then Scholastic brought us all together literally around a table in New York. And they said, what do we want to do with this? And we were allowed a lot of freedom in terms of picking f- where we wanted to go. For For your listeners who don't know what it's about, it's, it's basically a, a time travel series where the kids have to go back in time to fix places where history went wrong or it didn't happen how, you know, it, 
it was supposed to. It's kind of a, uh, it's a cool premise. And we were allowed to sort of pick our historical event. Uh, we were allowed to go where we wanted to go and do with the characters what we really wanted to do. But we did have to coordinate so that we were handing off the characters. We knew what we were getting. So I had a lot of conversations with Matt De La Pena, who wrote the book right before mine. Like, what are you doing with the characters? What am I going to get? Where are they going to be? So that I could start off my book in the right place and then take them where I wanted to take them. There was a cohesive whole to it. We did meet and sort of talk about that. And everyone really checked their ego at the door. Like, no one was really trying to outshine the others. We just wanted to make this series really cool and, you know, really great for the readers. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about that series is it is so cohesive, even though you can see each author's individual personalities, especially if you're very familiar with the authors and sure. you, you know yeah. their works. Yeah, it does You come can through. read them and you think, oh, I know this author, but yet it's so much part well, of Scholastic the- wanted that. They told us they, they want, like if it's a, they wanted it, they told yeah. me, like the way they said it was, we want your book to feel like a Matthew J. Kirby book. Yeah. And, but at the same time, there was an editor, there were, you know, actually, you know, a couple of editors, Nick Eliopoulos and Emily Safe, but they were overseeing the whole process. And so the cohesiveness would probably be attributed to their oversight and making sure we were all on the same page and bringing that all together. Well, and I love the story arc, too, the fact that it really does, the characters really do develop over the course of the, of the whole series. So it's not like there's just little bits and pieces of development. So how did you pick your segment? How did you pick your segment of history? What, what was that that inspired you for your, your piece of that segment? Well, I went to Golden Age Baghdad when it was uh, being, uh, the Mongols were laying siege to it, Hulagu Khan, you know, the grandson of Genghis Khan. It was a fascinating time period, and I realized it, it kind of came to me because I work in the schools as a school psychologist, and it occurred to me one day that kids today, per, pretty much their entire lives, Baghdad has been synonymous with war. Very true. And that's not the way it was for me growing up. When I was growing up, Baghdad was like, you know, the thief of Baghdad. It was the Arabian Nights. It was magical. Yeah. And I thought, that makes me sad. Like, there is so much more to this city. Like, you know, back in the Middle Ages, it was one of the greatest cities on earth where people of multiple religions lived side by side. I mean, there was still a regime that was in, in place, but but for the most part, it was fairly peaceful and managed so that everyone got along. It's where the greatest scholars were. It's where the greatest libraries were. I was reading about one particular guy, uh, just a wealthy businessman in Baghdad who had to move his libraries, his library, his personal library. And it took a train of 600 camels Amazing. to move his personal library. I need more than 600 camels. To right. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing that really was tragic is when the Mongols uh, sacked the city, they turned it into a ghost town. They, like, they reduced it to nothing for a couple of centuries. And they said that the river, the Tigris River, ran black with the ink of the books Ugh. that they tossed into the river. And so I wanted to save some of those books. As a librarian, I must say, I, I really love that book of yours oh, because you. I, I love that uh, that sense of the power of the written word. And I think that's something that a lot of kids today don't necessarily completely understand. Um, and so seeing that 
beautiful historical period brought so richly to life in your book was something that I personally personally enjoyed that kind of thing. But what kind of response do you get from your fans? Are there some of your standalone books that they say, oh, I want more of that story? Oh, yeah. Are are you going to listen to them and and maybe Uh, extend that? (laughs) You know, I get, I yeah. And I, and not only that, but because my books are standalone and they're all so different, people are fairly passionate about which one they like more, which is fine with me. I don't, when they're so different, it's not that I have an expectation that everyone's going to love them all equally. Um, so some people really love Icefall and they really want to know what happened next for Solvig. And some people really love the Clockwork 3 and they want to know, did Giuseppe ever get home? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I may write sequels one day if, if a story comes to me that I feel compelled to tell. In the case of Solvig, that book came to me in such a powerful way. The first 10 pages of that book remain in the final copy, exactly almost word for word as I wrote them the first time through. Her voice was there, the character was there, and I just had to try and do her justice. That's not something I can force. But the other day, I did write two pages of something, and Solvig started talking to me again. And I'm not sure yet what it's going to be. I posted on Facebook, and I got tons of responses, and then I felt guilty because I don't want to be known as a big tease or anything. Like, I'm not trying to... I even said on the Facebook book, I don't know what this is going to be. But I just have to wait for the story to come to me. That makes a lot of sense. I know, particularly today, a lot of... um Fans take it on themselves to kind of continue the story. Oh, yeah, that's write, awesome. Write yeah. fan fiction. So how do you feel fan about fiction. that? Oh, what, yeah, it's what awesome. What are your thoughts on there? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Finish I, the story. <laughs> I, there was a kid, uh, any type of creativity. That, I, I think creativity begets creativity. And there was this brilliant kid who, um, Alessandro, and I'm trying to remember his last name. This is a couple years ago. But he's a prodigy, and he actually wrote three pieces of music, symphonies, that were performed at a conservatory in San Francisco that were inspired by Icefall and The Clockwork Three. And he sent me a link to these performances that are on YouTube. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I, I take no credit for that. He was, I, just as I get inspired by something and I go do something with it and make it mine, he took something he was inspired by and took it and made it this incredible thing that was all his. So, yeah, if kids want to take my stories or any stories, I, I'm all for it. I just think that that's amazing. Yeah, I think that's a great statement that creativity begets creativity because there's that really great connection between what you experienced and then what you want to give back to the oh, world yeah, absolutely. As, part of, yep. as part of the creative process. Yeah, I am driven by the creative process. I just find it really exciting. I, I think it's amazing to sort of sit back and there is something that is now in the world that was not in the world before that you made. And I think that that is that enriches life. It enriches my life to make it. And then I share it, hoping it might enrich somebody else's life to experience it. Although I don't expect it to, but I'm I'm happy to share it. That's sort of how I approach it. And I'd love to see kids being inspired by anything and then being creative themselves, because that then enriches my life in return. Well, thank you, Matt, for enriching all of our lives. I oh. know you've enriched mine with well, your works. You. I, I appreciate hope you will continue to enrich many generations of children. I hope to keep at it. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Children's book author Matt Kirby talking about his process in writing standalone books as opposed to a book series. 
We finish up the show today with a poem by William Blake entitled The Lamb, read by Emma Calderwood. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. A poignant poem by William Blake entitled The Lamb. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio Sirius XM Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.